My name is JT Van Zant, and I'm a fly fishing guide on the Gulf Coast of Texas. Being out on the water has always been the secret to unlocking my soul. A sense of calm comes over me and I feel like I can breathe. That feeling inspires deep thought and conversation with my clients. I truly enjoy sharing perspective on the human experience with folks I take fishing. My podcast, Drifting, brought to you by Yeti, was created with the goal of capturing those candid conversations with people who inspire me and sharing their stories with an audience that has the same restless curiosity that I do. Thanks for listening to Drifting. My favorite time spent is outdoors hunting and fishing. There's no greater thrill than to stalk an animal in its natural environment. And specifically, fly fishing and bow hunting require this proximity to your prey. It must account for so many factors to be successful. It requires endless practice and time and dedication. And eventually, if you love it, it becomes a lifestyle you can't live without. Remy Warren has always lived that lifestyle. He's a professional hunter, writer, photographer, and host of multiple outdoor TV series. Remy has honed his skills as a top predator. He spent the majority of his life literally on foot, away from civilization, in the mountains bow hunting for deer and elk and sheep. Remy has taken his hunting missions to a new level by self-filming his adventures and capturing his prey and his hunt on camera solo. So cool. I was stoked to talk to Remy about his vast experience in the mountains and how he balances that with life and society. He shared some incredible stories of life-threatening rescues in the backcountry, one time involving the woman he loves. What's so cool is Remy has forged a way to live out his passions as a hunter and mountaineer by sharing with his audience the intensity of each of his hunts. So I hear congratulations in order. You're getting married? Yep, getting married. How soon is that? April 4th, so very soon. Congratulations. Yeah, less than a month away. And how do you hunt 300 days a year and find a woman and maintain a relationship? That seems impossible. I can barely hold on to mine. Yeah, it Fishing, is, much less than that. It is nearly impossible. I, You know, I've, I've kind of structured my life a little bit different in the last few years, so... I don't necessarily i'm not gone as much as i used to be only 250 days yeah, in the wild like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on yeah but for me it's cutting back for her it's like that's still a lot <laughs> is it true that you saved her from being lost at one point yeah is that, that is. how you guys met no it's not how we met i i knew her before that oh, okay so i was kind of thinking maybe just uh unbeknownst to you that was the reason you'd been out there all that time like wilderness hunter slash rescuer of fair maidens well yeah it is it is kind of a story like that what later. happened she was um yeah like the it's actually a it's kind of a long story but um she'd gone out hiking she didn't have it, she, she wasn't feeling good and like she hadn't been sleeping so she just thought i'm just gonna go for a hike clear my head kind of thing and in, during that time she's training for marathon she runs a lot so going long distances is not a problem but i think being sick going out she just had no water nothing and it's high desert so those canyons get super hot in the daytime and she just went up the trail probably i don't know some kind of uh, heat stroke something you know 
wakes up with no clue where she is. And at least she had the sense to stay put. Because um, you go, I have no clue where to go. Did you glass her? Did you no, see her? How did so how, you come across is, her? Okay, so um, <laughs> I was in Alaska and I got a call from her sister in tears. I just literally got off the plane. I'm bringing my bags in the house and we had dated a few years earlier and then we kind of just went our separate ways. Um, and it was funny because I had recently she moved, she moved away and then was moving back. And so we were texting and planning on meeting up and I get back from Alaska and I get a text from her or a call from her sister and her sister was crying and asked if I'd seen or heard anything of where she might be. And I had no clue what was going on. She said she, they found her vehicle at a trailhead and they haven't seen her and they don't know where she is and they'd been searching. Um, and so I immediately, I called my brother and my best friend and I was, I mean, honestly, I was like pretty tore up about it. That's a serious yeah, it's danger. It's a very serious thing. Yeah. Happens it all is. The time. Yeah, it does. A lot of people don't realize Nevada has more public land than anywhere in the lower 48. It's ma the majority of it is public land. There's Reno, Vegas, Elko, Winnemucca. Vegas is eight hour drive from Reno. It's a very big expanse of places with nothing around. And yeah. every year people get lost out there. The desert doesn't get enough credit for its no. intricacy, right? You drive exactly. through it on a freeway and it just looks like a postcard, but yeah. there's canyons and forests down in crevasses. And yeah. And people don't realize the amount of mountain ranges that are in Nevada has more independent mountain ranges than any other state. It's actually the most mountainous state. And you think, Oh, it's, you just think it's flat. No, there's, there's mountain ranges because the way that the, the high, we call it high desert because you might be at seven to up to 13,000 feet there. Right. So, but it doesn't get a lot of rainfall, you know, but it gets, it'll get the snow in the wintertime. That's mostly it's the water source that you get is from snowpack. And in the summer, it'll be hot during the day and could drop down to 30 degrees at night, especially early in the early in the summer or late in the summer you knew the trouble she was in yeah you know definitely. it like the back of your hand yeah and and the the scary part for me was having known that they had a black hawk helicopter out there looking and were unable to find her and so when when i my brother and my friend joe we got in the vehicle together i, I mean literally just dropped everything we were doing jumped in the vehicle and started driving out there it was about two hours away from where we live. And we got some of the reports. There was obviously like Facebook and other things. Um, and the reports were she didn't have anything with her. Uh, and that they looked and hadn't found. They sent the dogs up and the dogs had run up and then back to the vehicle multiple times so they were under the assumption that she and then there was reports of a vehicle with mexico plates leaving the area so they were under the impression that she'd gone up come back and could have possibly been taken and so when i got there um some of the people had, I, I were like they don't normally let people into a search area they're like no 
this guy knows what he's doing, but it was almost on dark. And we, I, I mean, I was in that place where I pretty much packed up my bag and said, I'm not coming back till I find her. And my brother and everyone, okay, if I have to search through the night, I don't care. Like, I can't just sit here. I'm not going to be able to sit here. Yeah, thrill your thumbs yeah, when you, when exactly. you know, know the places to go yeah. and look. Exactly. So I thought, well, we're going to get up. We're going to get some vantages, even if we're looking at nighttime. And I also thought, all right, they've looked for almost two days now and with no success. I'm not going to listen to anything any recommendations, if that makes sense. Right. The playbook's just, because, out the window. Yeah, now. the playbook's out the window. Whatever was going on before didn't work. Not that it was wrong. It's just, you know, it wasn't working. And The tracking tracking skills go yeah, into play and it, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So my thought was the, the helicopter is running in the middle of the day, but even if you, in the middle of the day, are probably going to be in some kind of shade or who knows what kind of condition, you just don't know. You also don't know going into it, am I going to find a dead body? Am I, is this going to be unresolved forever? You know, there's a lot, a lot going through your mind. It's a very heavy, you know, experience. And unknowingly, you had prepared your whole life. Exactly. Yeah. It was, uh, it was one of those things that I took the experience of it a lot like I go on a hunt, but the stakes were a lot higher as far as when I go hunting, I might have a general plan, but I, I like to think that when I'm out there, I do what, what feels right. Whether it's sometimes you go, I'm going to go over this rock this way, but I feel like I should go this way. And I just, I try to follow that. So that's what I decided before I, on the drive out there, I'd said to myself, I'm going to do what what feels right. I'm not going to let other decisions influence what I do. So by the time we got settled in, um, some of the search and rescue guys took us up, showed us where the dogs had gone. Okay. So just drive me as far up this Canyon as you can go. Cause they were saying like, well, how far might she go? I said, you know, your, your radius could be 15 miles. And we'd hiked all over the place before never once on a trail. So being off the trail wouldn't have been a, an issue. So we uh, went up and I talked to one of the search and rescue people and asked them about possibly getting uh, infrared, a FLIR system, because I thought that would be our best opportunity. However, what happens in the desert is the rocks get real hot in the day. So they, they hold that heat because it's volcanic type rock. So you need to use it three or four hours after dark, once almost midnight time, once the heat dissipates off the rock, then you're able to distinguish animals or other things with that, with that infrared. Otherwise it just all looks the same. And you, know, you like to think that, that infrared stuff, oh, you can just see it's, it's very hard to actually find things with that infrared, but it was, it's a lot easier than not being able to see. It was a moonless night. There was no light out. Um, I had a little handheld spotlight and a headlamp. So I start, I just thought, it's starting to get dark now. And I see this spot and I think this is where I would walk. So I just started walking up it. 
and I'm hiking around, hiking up, and it's this big basin. It's got like a, a ridge, multiple canyons in it, lots of cliffs. So your thought is, okay, did she fall off a cliff? Is Am I going to, you know, there, there's a lot of things running through your head at this point, running through my head at this point. Can I ask real quick yeah. if, if the if the notion that you truly loved her was one of those thoughts? Oh, I, I knew like, that I loved her, yeah. Even, even though you guys hadn't been together in yeah. a little while? Oh, yeah. Did you know it all along up into the search or did? Yeah, I knew it all in along. In the search, did it occur to me, I have to find her. She's my gal. Oh yeah, it, okay. that that was running through my God, head I'm the whole chills, time. Man. It's so intense. Yeah, I mean, I I had known, and, and this is, yeah, I mean, this is, I, I I actually really have never even told, except for a few close friends, this story. So it's really weird to actually say it here, and you know, some of it, you know, she probably doesn't want out there, but uh, so I might have to get her permission. Yeah, whatever you're but, comfortable with, and you the know, end, you'll you'll be able to. Yeah, they. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I knew when we were dating, she was just a little bit younger and, and she had some job opportunities come up and I wanted her to take those opportunities. And, but I knew that if it would ever to work out, you know, that I want, I wanted to be with her for sure. And so th those thoughts are running through my head. And then the thoughts of what could possibly, at that moment, there was no, the outcome seemed very bleak. It was at that point where you're going, okay, am I going to find a, a dead body? Am I going to never find this person? Am I, you just don't know. It was a really horrible, it was the worst feeling in my life. And if I never experienced that again. Thank God. Yeah. It was a, it was a very helpless, horrible feeling. How did you stay on track? Like, you know, you just kind of squashing those emotions to, to I keep was, your going? I was. I mean, I was very, yeah, in some instance, I guess it was using it, I don't know, almost a, uh, what was a good way to describe it? Like a self-deprecating feeling where you feel so bad, but you want to channel that pain into working hard. If that makes sense. Sure. Like, I don't care how far I have to go, how long I have to be here. I'm going to keep looking. And that's, yeah, it was a weird, I, I never want to feel that again. I'm on um, the edge of my seat, yeah. man. What happened? So I start, I, I walk up this, I, I, I pick a random place to walk up. Now it's pitch black. Uh, my brother and myself and my buddy Joe, we have radios to communicate to each other. And the rest of the search crew had, had searched all day and they'd gone back to the base camp to, to rest up. So we, so I, I start walking up and I'm just literally walking in the dark and you get this feeling of this is very helpless. What good is this going to do? But you just have to do it. Doubt. Yeah. Doubt's pouring in. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of things were pouring in. So I, I lit, I, I'm on kind of like a, a game trail in this, I mean, this face is pretty large and, and I'm walking up. I am literally praying, give me a sign, something just standing there, a, a pretty much a mess. And I look down and I see it's a fairly steep mountain and I see a scuff mark 
but there's deer tracks everywhere. There's, but for some reason, this mark in my light did not, it, it looked out of place. It was in a sea of sagebrush and everything. This mark looked out You're of place. You're the only one that could have found her. Yeah. So it's like I, a heel slide or something like I that? I think it was a toe slip. Okay. Yeah. So I start following these tracks. And I think, and it comes up to this bench. And I just get this weird feeling at this bench. So I stop and I, I make some noise, like yell out, nothing. And then I see a light at the top of the mountain. And I think, oh, maybe that's the FLIR system, the maybe they they got something i'll get it and come back and look over here with the thermal imaging so i hike up to that light and i thought it was pretty close first but there was quite a few it was, it was actually a little bit further than i thought so i get up there and get to the light and it just happened to be some random people that weren't really supposed to be in there so i showed them a picture and asked if they'd seen anything nothing now at this point it's probably 11:30 p.m., maybe close to midnight. So I call my brother and Joe on the radio. I say, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's no moon. It's dark. Maybe we just regroup and just be ready to glass with our optics at first light while the lighting's good. So I radio him. I say. Maybe let, let's maybe meet in the bottom of this canyon. They're probably three miles from me. And they go, okay. You know, like we kind of. Six hours in at this point? Yeah. Probably. So you were starting that. at dusk, right? Yeah. We started six about dusk. Yeah. Dusk, yeah. And then, yeah, about five or six hours in. And uh, I think, nah, I, I just had this feeling back. I said, I called him. I said, you know, let, let's reconvene, but I got to go check out this spot again. So I walk back to that little bench where I just had that weird feeling. And uh, I sit down and I yell out, Danielle, if you can hear me, this is Remy. I'm not leaving till I find you. And I'm just sitting there and I hear Remy. And I'm like, is this real? Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, and at this point it's probably like 2.30 in the morning. Um, so I immediately, I call my brother and Joe on the radio. I said, Guys, I heard her. Get a medical crew up here. I'm turning my radio off. Because if that's the one time that I, if if she yells out one more time, because it, it's such a big canyon, it echoes, I have no clue where that sound came from. I mean, it's absolutely no clue, but I know that she's here right now. And so uh, I, I turn my radio off because I don't want the next time that she yells out the radio chatter to be going and completely miss it. Because I knew that before it got dark, I, I surveyed the area and got a really good mental picture of what was around. I knew across from me was a bunch of big cliffs. So I thought, well, maybe that's where, she, you know. So I shut my radio off and I yell out again and again and again and n nothing back. And then I, I start to move in, in a, I kind of just picked a direction, started to move, but I wanted to move fast but quiet because if i heard almost like i was stalking a deer yeah. in that moment where yeah. you just have to move quick and listen or it not be heard just so i could hear it's if i hear something your skills came into play yeah in situation. and then so i i yelled out again and then i heard i'm right here 
and I flip on my light and she was 300 yards below me right in that same area where I had that feeling super steep super steep yeah very steep what condition was she in um definitely confused I mean because when I got down to her you know you almost want to just like give her a hug but she was very scared didn't really it's like do you know who I am I think so do you know who you are this is like what's your name just basic like first responder questions not really like I, I don't know very very out of it um which I think was a, a combination of so many things that you don't even until you've been in that situation you hear the stories of people like they get lost on a snowmobile and then they find them dead in the snow with no clothes on you know yeah, what i'm saying very confused very confused it's a weird it's a very weird experience that i was very unfamiliar with exertion and Ex sleep deprivation combined. exactly and Lose i think mind. yeah it's it's the sleep deprivation the 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 combination of the heat and the no water and the multiple days out there you don't even know i think the people yeah the people don't even know if the person rescuing them is real and so i think that that it was just a very uh very like crazy and you know i i've been out there enough to have heard these kind of stories and and things like that so i was prepared to um you know just help get her out get out get her out of there yeah this uh, is day three for her uh going on yeah so the next yes at that point it would have been day going on day three um yes yeah and then so i i now called my my brother and it, it turned my light on like a beacon flashing thing so they could find me and you know just tried to to comfort her singing her some songs that you know try what to was get the response from just full elation yeah for everyone like I, involved in the and, and kind of a disbelief a little bit yeah um needle in a haystack yeah. you found your girl yeah and so i uh i called my brother and then joe ran down he literally sprinted to the base camp to get a vehicle to get up around closer to where we were at and then we were able to contact, like, you know, get some EMTs and some other stuff there. And yeah, so we, you know, it was part of it was I uh, was just trying to bring back, you know, memories and, and, and try to calm her down, singing some familiar songs and stuff like that. It's just I think that there's a lot. You know, okay, you've had this really scary experience. You know, let's calm down and just trying to help, you know. And then uh, and we started talking about, I started talking about some stories. And uh, she started to remember some stuff. It said, so a few years earlier, maybe three years earlier, we were out, um, hunting sheep. I had this sheep tag in Nevada. We were scouting and we were you know, in the middle of the wilderness and we packed in. And I was just giving her a little test. I said, which way is the truck? She pointed over this direction. Said, over here. And I was like, well, 
you're kind of right. It's actually this direction, a little bit off. It's like, what happens if we got lost out here? I said, I don't get lost. She said, yeah, but what happens if I get lost? I said, well, I'll find you. And she remembered that moment after I'd found her. She just started crying. She said, you promised you'd find me. You promised you'd find me. Oh, and, man. Uh, you know, from, Holy smokes. from that point is, is history. Y'all aren't going nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, gosh. I yeah. didn't anticipate the intensity of that story. The outcome is amazing. Yeah. Here's to you guys. Getting married on the fourth. Getting then. married. Yeah. It's exciting. Is she spooked to go trail running? Will she not no. do it without you? She's <laughs> no. back on track now. Yeah. She's all better and yeah. good. Yeah. Good for her, man. Makes us stronger, right? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that that kind of thing can, I think it's sometimes the most capable people that end up. Pushing that far in. Yeah. In, in those kind of situations. Yeah. It's obviously extremely scary. You never want that to happen again. But, you know, it doesn't impede our enjoyment out there, her enjoyment. still. Yeah. Still, pretty much hikes. The marsh can be that way. Oh yeah, you know, just a, a small creek entrance to a huge back area of more creeks and back lakes, and if you don't know that single way out, you might Confusing. be spending the night. But oh wow, gosh! And then also a bear attack recently, right? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. The, the old bear <laughs> bringing out all the heavy hitting stuff. <laughs> Why not, man? Yeah. You know, the the bear attack, I've had to tell that story a lot in recent times. Just I think bear attacks are just something that capture people's interest. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that the bear attack is, in, in my life of experiences, the bear attack is, is in it, but it's just a side story, I feel like. Yeah. If that makes sense. I, I, people might think that that's strange. No, to me, it seems just like something that's bound to happen with the amount of time you spend. Exactly. In the and that's the way I see it. I, it was an intense experience, but it wasn't something that, that I think was as, it, as bad as they picture it. Right. If it that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it, it, it doesn't dominate your story, even a chapter. Right. It's just a tale. It's just a you've tale. Experienced. Yeah. I've packed around in BC fishing for steelhead with the mace. And I, right. think that, I think that outdoorsmen almost welcome that experience to scratch it off the list until it happens. Until it, exa- <laughs> and that's exactly it. Is you, but the thing is, is that's one of those, every time you're hiking around in that, you visualize it. So it was that visualization that you knew was coming at some point happening and it's a hell of a lot scarier when it happens than what you think because you think it's going to be bad and i'll do this this and this. yeah you, you don't none of that happens right. it, yeah. it's the circumstances and you can never be too prepared that's what i learned about it um you know we got lucky it wasn't because i've had encounters with plenty of bears uh mostly charging or wolfing or whatever but this was a full-on you could see that bear was in it to to do some damage. And the scary part for me was how many times, how fast it happened, how real it was, and then thinking about all the times that 
I've been in that similar place or area by myself and it w I wouldn't have made it. And that was the scary, that was really the scary part is just thinking about the times that you probably could have been in that same situation and how helpless you are in that situation. Accepting our vulnerability. Yeah, and very vulnerable. Luckily, because um, the, the way the bear charged in, there were six of us around and we all scattered. It was uh, that scatter effect. I mean, there's a think of all the species on the planet that survive. That's their one survival tactic is scattering. Did you some all bolt and some dropped and rolled and yep. just did everyone it was have their chaos. own? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everyone had their own method of yeah, getting the hell out. Exactly. Um, oh wow. One of the guys, Giannis, hit the bear with a trekking pole. I, I went to go for my pistol, which was just across from me. We didn't have our protection with us, and that was the that was the part that really upset me personally this was a grizzly bear for the record, a kodiak right? brown bear. yeah yeah very large i've shooed some black bear out of trash cans yeah. and stuff. Different, <laughs> not like that different experience like, like a bear a very large like a, a beef cow size yeah. bear i guess uh yeah i and it happens so fast and you almost too fast to really comprehend because the, the amount of time it takes to tell a story is very drawn out for the for as fast as everything went down. Yeah. And that's I think that's one of the any any kind of experience where it's very intense, time is very confusing. Certain things feel longer and some things feel faster. It's a very weird weird experience. I feel like everything happens fast but in slow motion that makes sense it does it does um, did the bear stick around or did yeah that so he, he came in i went for the gun i did some kind of juke move i and my like not very spatially awareness thought that, that scared the bear away when i didn't realize the guy behind me hit it with a trekking pole <laughs> you know? that's gonna work uh, yeah um and then it was just mass confusion people yelling and at some point the bear spun around someone was somehow on the bear's back we, we actually, I thought that he had that person because I just saw like a person and a bear and it was crazy. And I, I he, what was that even, move about? Did, was the bear sort of af, like on you? No, someone... I think it was, I think what had happened was when the bear wheeled around, maybe it hit him and he fell. It was like back to back with the bear. Oh my goodness. Uh, from what I gather, I, it was pretty much chaos. But then we, we all regrouped back up. And then, yeah, we could hear the bear in different, like circling us again, but it's so thick you couldn't see anything. But he never fully charged in that second time. Thank God you had people yeah. with you, right? And at that point, we had pistols and, and mace, but the wind was really bad, so we couldn't have used the bear spray. It would have been completely ineffective because he ran in with the wind. Like, very stiff wind. I don't, probably was at that there a point, smell 30 miles associated enough. with the experience? Not that I remember, but the wind was so. Yeah. was so fast foul, right? yeah but the honestly the wind was so strong you couldn't have smelt anything that's and intense yeah. remy yeah um you know you had a very fortunate answer to a question that i read that was asked of you in terms of your main influence and you credited your um your family excuse me yeah i get really emotional by that because of uh it's just about the most fortunate answer you could have to be the affected the most positively in this world by your immediate family, your mom and dad. 
can you talk about specifically how they were with you and and how they inspired you and yeah, remain definitely. the biggest influence in your life yeah i think um you know my dad's is the one that got me into hunting and his dad got him into hunting and so probably between my dad and my grandpa uh very influential my grandpa especially as far as what i'm doing now um my grandpa was an outfitter and really just a wild man i mean if you think i have stories he has some of the best stories you would ever hear in your life but that he lived his life like that um you know and i think in in a lot of ways uh kind of all myself and my brothers have taken after him in some fashion um which is really cool you know he was uh he was uh, i mean i don't throw the word out lightly but he was a legend he was uh Anybody that knew him, I mean, he, he was the kind of guy that <laughs> I could just go on for days about stories about him. One time Feel free. he used to, so he was a, he was a professional boxer. Um, he boxed over in Korea and then came home and actually, um, was in, uh, I guess it was Rocky Marciano's camp for, for boxing. And, um, but he, uh, he just, he, he wasn't afraid of anything. He wasn't a real tall guy, but he didn't have short man syndrome either. You know, he was just a very fair type of person. Um, what would you credit his character to? Did I think, he grow up in Nevada as well? No, he grew up on the Taihee Indian Reservation outside of Pocatello, Idaho. Okay. Um, his, like, they ended up there because, I guess, two generations back, his grandparents were actually Ute translators that came over and then they um like I don't know during the he was they were translators and then they came over and then just remained there he had a fairly tough upbringing um he worked since he was a little kid and in the fields they actually his name was smut they uh he never went by his his given name he only went by smut because he's like a fairly light he was like a a little white kid that lived on the reservation and worked in the wheat fields and so every time he would come home he would be covered in the the wheat top which is called smut so they would call him smutty because he was always he was like a little white kid covered in white dust every day so they always called him smutty (laughs) and it stuck (laughs) and so uh they yeah so he for his entire life he went by the name smut do you think he had to scrap with indian kids um or did boxing just come natural based on his no i think boxing came natural i think it was one of those things that he got into i can't even remember exactly how he got into it um his brother uh, or his cousin was a famous boxer named Gene Fulmer, and uh, and they did a lot of like gym work and stuff in Idaho. There, so there were influences. Yeah, that he had drew, a lot of influences into the boxing. Yeah, and I think when he got into the service, he thought 
oh, I'm pretty good at punching people. I think I can make a living out of this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. An outdoorsman. Yeah. All the while. There wasn't really a separation with that generation. In, no. I mean, you, maybe if you were born in New York City, right? In mm-hmm. Early 1900s. But otherwise, like, like getting food was just part of the game. Yeah. I, hunting no was separation. just something you did. And later on, it was something that he really loved to do. He he actually would go up and work for an outfitter in the Selway wilderness, packing in pack strings, and then it ended up later in life kind of quitting his job, moving up there, and becoming an outfitter. Um, and then before or shortly after I was born, he had sold his outfitting business. Um, but, you know, that always had appealed to me. And just, you know, having that, Maybe it's just in my blood passed down, but just that that little bit of wild in you that you kind of need these adventures that you can't get other places. Um, I mean, just like the type of person he was. I think he'd been bit by rattlesnakes maybe four or five times. <laughs> oh, God, to stomp yeah. on it and move on. Huh? Yeah, but he used, to, he used to like to catch them and then show everybody how fast he was. And I guess one time he was messing with a rattlesnake and got bit. So he decided to drive himself to the hospital. <laughs> and he was driving into town and he blacks out and goes, drives his car through the front of a gas station convenience store. <laughs> and the, the guy said, because I got, I got this story from the guy who owned this store. He says he opened the door and my grandpa fell out holding a live rattlesnake in his hand. <laughs> so that way everyone would know what happened to him i believe you now quite the character quite the character you know it's just like that kind of stuff constantly the type of man without we would never have built this nation yeah just just a tough a tough guy but he also cared a lot about people as well um when i think about cowboys at least from my early texas references they were the most compassionate people there were because they had that intimate knowledge of animals. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like uh versus someone who, who doesn't interact with animals, but has a picture of how nice they are or whatever. It's yeah. just not reality. Like cowboys have to saw off the horns and birth calves. And I, w- I would always see my granddad nursing a little baby calf whose mother had died or something with, and the next day kind of, you know, prodding it onto a truck for sale. Right. You know? The, it, it it exists hand in hand that compassion love for the outdoors and that's that's fascinating how about your old man yeah he so he got me into hunting and i just was obsessed with it i think maybe it's just my personality type but your earliest was, memory yeah i i i mean there's pictures of me in a backpack by a river where i'm in my mom's backpack and we'd pack, they'd packed in and I was a baby and they were sleeping in a wall tent on a straw floor. It was like, it was just, that was normal to me. It's what I liked and fishing, especially. Um, I think a lot of people that hunt started out fishing. I was so hooked on fishing. I mean, I just wanted to fish every way that I could. I think I started fly fishing probably when I was uh, seven or eight. 
I don't even think my, I was just so into fishing that my dad was like, Oh, a friend of his fly fished. And I'd just go out in there and I would practice every day. I would fish cause we lived right on a little lake there. So I'd just go fishing every day, just loved to fish. And then that also translated into hunting as well. I'd go bird hunting with my dad and when he'd get a deer tag and I was just enamored with it and just eaten up with not just hunting, but just the whole, everything outdoors as far as that went. Do you think he had a de deliberate plan? Like in terms of getting you into it, you think he had a strategy or is it just what you guys did? Uh, it was just what we did. And I think, I honestly think that cause he would hunt with his brother a little bit, but it was weird. It was a weird thing where I was so into it that he got more into it. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Because I have, I have a six I think, year old that, you know, I mean, you just can't let TV be an option. Right. Right. And you gotta be a little selfish and stick with your passion or the kid's not going to learn what it is. You're the best at. Yeah. You can't stop and then have a kid and treat it different than just life. Life rolls on, bring them along. Right. Stick exactly. them in the pack. Yeah. And I think part of it is my dad hunted more. The more I got into it, he was, he was probably your typical guy that would go out and, and just hunt every once in a while and, and liked it. And I was just obsessed with it because uh, I was obsessed with it. He became obsessed with it because it was something that we did together. And I mean, I just couldn't get enough of it. We'd go and, and they, my parents did a really good job of, they were the type of people that said, you know, if you love to do something, just do it. Yeah. You'll figure it out later. Just go for it. I mean, as long as I got okay grades in high school, they, I could go hunting as much as I wanted. <laughs> and that was, you know, so they didn't awesome. have to discipline you much. No, y'all were all doing something. Everyone loved together. Exactly. And yeah. that, it, it's easy. You take kids outside and they behave themselves and yeah. start digging and messing with rocks and throwing sticks and exactly being kids. Yeah. What do you think about sort of the safety that we apply to children these days? And like, you know, you, you went on your first solo hunt when you were around 13 or so. Yeah. And yeah. like most parents of 13 year olds argue about whether a BB gun's a good idea. Like yeah. What are we losing in this culture where we're so worried that someone's going to get hurt that we, we're not allowing children to, to explore and discover and, and get hurt and get stronger and, and learn caution. Like, yeah. I don't, from I think your it's, mind. it's super weird to me because I remember when I was, I remember reading in the regulations, you had to be 13 to hunt on your own. And I thought to myself, God, that's so old. <laughs> now <laughs> looking now. back, I'm like, come on. Uh, I mean, I, I meet a 13 year old kid and I go, I wouldn't let that kid out there with a gun by himself. But you know, we, from a very young age, were taught safety and I had so many hunting experiences and the amount of time to do it by then felt like I knew exactly what I was doing. I remember there was a place we called it Indiana Jones because you had to walk across this old trussel bridge to get into the area. And I didn't like well, having to walk across that bridges, like an old train type bridge. And then we'd it was pretty high up. So you'd have to walk across it and then you could start hunting. And my dad would drop me and my buddy Josh off. And we just go hunt all day long and then come back. And it, there was, you know, nothing ever, you know, happened. It wasn't, it was some of the best hunting times we had. 
And I think now, yeah, I mean, people are afraid to, but maybe it's a, it's also a different world now. Did you and it's not any, even that long ago. Yeah. I, I don't know. Did but, you have any near accident, like serious catastrophe? Any no. like, like uncocking that went wrong? Or? No, very knock on wood, uh, pretty cautious. I wonder, I bet you you were like me where you had this just intense reverence and respect for the gun. Oh, yeah. And what do you think that, what what made us so serious when we took up a firearm? Besides just the the lesson we learned from our fathers or uncles or whoever brought us into hunting, like you, you just felt so fortunate to be trusted with that privilege that you took it real serious, Yeah, right? you took it very serious. I mean, there there's no... That was one thing that there's no messing around with. It's not a game. It's not, it's, it's safe. And, and also I feel like hunting, I'd kill the animals. I knew the power of a gun. I knew what it meant to take an animal's life. I knew there was a very serious Mm. thing on the end of that. At a very young age, I was very aware of what a firearm is. It wasn't a toy. But it wasn't, for me, it wasn't a weapon either. It was a tool. It was a tool that I would go out hunting with. I had a single shot 410. And I had, and then I graduated to a Mossberg 20 gauge pump shotgun. You know? And, and for me, you know, gun safety was always number one yeah i like to think of myself i i always make the joke that my middle name because people oh my middle name's danger i say my middle name's careful danger you know calculated risk and there's certain things that you just don't mess around with and now that's that's habit you open a gun safe you're in that mental space where things become very serious exactly i mean every every gun is loaded there's no such thing to me as a as an unloaded gun you know, I treat, and that's, I feel like, yeah, I think that that's one thing that people probably lack now, especially because when they aren't grown up with it, you know, to have, you're taught at a very young age what that firearm means and how to be safe with it. I feel like a lot of the people that get into it later in life don't take it as seriously as the people that started. You brought up something really interesting that I immediately uh, believe is true and all the lessons that lead up to killing an animal they're sort of their theory right and mm-hmm. you follow it because you want to have that privilege you want to earn the right to have a gun and go hunting but then you take an animal's life right and the intensity the sadness the beauty of that whole process and like you said realizing what a bullet can do to a living creature and it erases from your mind the idea that you would grab a gun to show off or to to scare somebody. Like that's the that's the regulation. That mechanism is built into the experience where you respect what it can do and your right to to carry that gun. Definitely. So I mean, don't you think all kids, inner city kids, they're fascinated? I mean, we're all fascinated with firearms. It's a tool. It's a it's a tool that man has used for a long time to push through the West to capture food. Uh, there should be more programs for inner city kids to actually go through 
uh, a merit badge sort of program and, and learn more about guns and what they can do. I definitely think so. Yeah. And especially, you know, having the ability to, to hunt and use a, a firearm or a bow or whatever for its, one of its intended purposes and use it as a, a, a tool in a positive way. I guess you're, you're providing food for yourself. You're having this experience here and, and you can do it safely. I think that that's important. When did, uh, learning to process and, and, and break down an animal and the, and the cuisine come in, was that always a part of your family's experience when you were a kid? No. Um, I hate to say it, but my family was terrible at cooking game meat, horrible at it. Um, I kind of, there's a, a few things that I just, because I was so into it, I, 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 I dove into myself. One of them was archery and I then got my dad into it and, and duck hunting as well. When you live in the desert, duck hunting isn't a big <laughs> thing, but I'd seen pictures and read books. I was big on learning anything I could about hunting. I mean, I'd read every hunting magazine cover to cover two or three times a year. Just, I would keep them by my bed, read them every night, any book on hunting. There wasn't as much information then as there is now, but I would try to learn different styles of hunting and then, and then get into it. Um, yeah, but so the, the cooking was just something that I enjoyed doing so i would try to figure out ways to make it taste better because i loved hunting so much yeah. <laughs> and i thought okay i gotta get i gotta figure this out um and so most of most of it was just trial and error yeah and go okay i like this i don't like that or i'd have something and try to mimic that but it was cool because my parents would let my brothers and i cook if we wanted to yeah i don't know it seemed like it's not okay. a natural for our generation. His families were just coming off of the of the convenience of TV dinners and like that. Exactly, that whole movement pushed through through America really hard, and was 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 probably a, a big separation between man and animal at that period because all of a sudden you could pop a little aluminum tray into the oven and the whole family was handled. You exactly. Know? I had to uh, a little south of here. We still have three hundred acres in a town called Hallettsville, and. It, it it has a creek running through it, Rocky Creek, that's never been dry in my lifetime, even in super drought years. And I had to, I got the same sort of broken butt 410, no name rifle, yeah. right? Um, and there were quail back then, fire ants hadn't extinguished the quail, a lot of dove, I shot a lot of squirrel and I like to eat squirrel. And I was forced to eat everything I killed and I killed a raccoon and there was just no way to make it taste good yeah. <laughs> and i started fishing full-time then and stopped killing stuff um i'd never conceived of killing a deer or a big game animal at that point and only in the last 10 years have i killed deer and i'm so into hunting right now it's 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 problematic because it's graying out my desire to fish and that's what i do for yeah. a living yeah. <laughs> but bow hunting especially and there's a lot of correlation with fly fishing and bow hunting at least sight casting and saltwater yeah. And bow hunting because you're stalking, you're being quiet, you see the animal, you're presenting the fly in a manner that that tricks that animal. Whereas, um, when did you find bow hunting? Um, I probably start, I think I started shooting a bow. I started shooting a bow pretty young. 
Um, but I, I think my first bow hunt, I was probably 13. Um, I wasn't successful for a very long time though. It took me a long time to figure it out. I didn't even really know how to, to shoot a bow. I, I didn't know a single person that bow hunted. I didn't, I mean, some, some of the information I got was just in the line at the sporting kids store. Yeah. Somebody was like, you actually can't put that on that kind of bow. Oh, I had no clue. <laughs> <laughs> was your first to recurve or did you get a compound? Uh, yeah, out? no, I had a, a long bow, just like a, almost like you would shoot in the boy scouts first. Um, and then a compound and then I got a compound bow. Uh, I think it was probably like the only youth model compound bow that existed. Um, got a compound bow and then put some, the sights that I originally had on it, it was just wires and then the wire would go across and make like a small crosshair. Okay. <laughs> Did you rig cool. those up yourself? No, they, they sold them, but it wasn't anything. It wasn't just anything a little crazy. floating crosshair mm -hmm. out there, huh? Yeah. And add multiple ones, but there, there wasn't any information on bow hunting really then. And I had no one to talk to. I couldn't, it took me forever. So I only would use one pin because it made no sense to me that the top one would be the, cl the closest and, and moving. <laughs> and like, if you're shooting left, moving the sight left right. didn't make any sense. I didn't really understand how to sight it in. I still so I just had it. And, and see yeah, so I never actually it. sighted it in. I just kind of had it where I knew where it hit, and then I would just aim different. And then I ended up taking it off and going back and forth with it until I finally figured out, okay, this is how you do it, and really got into it. When did you feel comfortable to start flinging arrows at animals? Well, yeah, I mean, my first deer hunt, I, I didn't. Oh, it probably took me four years to even get close enough to something to shoot with a bow. Right. Yeah. Moving too fast, being too loud. Yeah. Anything. And my range at that point was 15, 20 yards. You know, you're trying to get really close. I didn't know you could shoot 30 yards. Well, I, even with that equipment, I couldn't shoot 30 yards. Probably 30 would probably be my, I think it was my max, 25, 30. Um, yeah. And, and there was no range finders. So you just had to get close. Right. You didn't, you didn't go, oh, it's 41.2 yards. Let me adjust to this dial. And there wasn't any of that. Yeah. yeah. You, you go, okay, I'm close enough. And when you're a kid, it seems a lot closer. I remember shooting at a deer. I got in on a deer and shot missed by quite a ways and then i paced it off it was like 45 yards or something it looked like it was 10 feet it looked like there's no way i can miss that right. especially coming from from shooting guns yeah yeah so and that's for me i'm i'm a hunter in every aspect i like bird hunting i enjoy any type of hunting there is i won't want to do it i enjoy all kinds of hunting not just, I mean, bow hunting obviously is, is, might not be obvious, but bow hunting is one of my main passions in hunting. But I enjoy rifle hunting. I enjoy hunting birds with a shotgun. I enjoy hunting birds with a bow. I, I just like all forms of hunting. When you're going to go out for a long stretch, really cover some ground, what's the determining factor and what weapon you're going to choose? 
the bow is my go-to, but it depends on the area, what I'm looking for, the, the type of challenge and the terrain, the animal. There's a lot of factors that go into it. Um, mostly I, I take, I would say 80% of the trips that I go on are with my bow, but there are the other trips that go, Oh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to rifle hunt this, or this is a rifle tag in an area where there's very low density and it's very big wilderness. And I might only see one animal. Isn't that like your backyard though? What was that? In, in Nevada. Didn't you um, just, just kind of describe the conditions there? Yeah. Or even places in Montana and Idaho, general areas that you have a general tag and you go, okay, it's October. It's a hard time of year to find animals. Right. They're really hidden and you go into an area that's low density, but you know, you're not going to see any people and you go, okay, I might get one opportunity. Let's not take piss in the wind. Right. I'm be I'm take for days. <laughs> exactly. I'll take a rifle. And then there's other times where you go, okay, I'm taking a bow because it's, it would be too easy with a rifle. Yeah. And I, 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 I go for, for me, it's about the experience and, I'm the, I've always been the type of person that I just loved hunting. So as much as I could hunt, I would, that meant that I would pass up animals until the last day of the season to shoot something because I wanted to be out there hunting every day. Right. So if I just shot it on the first day, then I'm done hunting. And that observation as well as, you know, pulling the trigger or, or, or letting your arrow go, just Getting yourself in proximity to animals is a very exciting thing. It is. And you get you gain more skills the more you're out there, not the more you're successful. It's a it's more about time in the field for me. You can you could be a very successful hunter, but every year you go out and you shoot the first buck you see. You're not a very skilled hunter, probably. You, because you haven't spent the time to acquire the necessary skills. So for me, I wanted to be out there more and more and more. And over the course of being out there a lot, I feel like I gained a lot of skills many other people may not have gained or, or, or skills, at least for myself. I'm not, it's not that type of, oh, I'm the best at this. No, it's not about that. For me, it's about, I gained experience and skills where I've seen enough things happen that I can kind of direct my decisions on how I proceed. And I, I feel like very connected to everything around me when I'm out there. It's like a light switch turns on and, and, and with that comes a lot of things. One of them that's very important to me is self-reliance. I know that when I go out there, I'll be okay. And that's, and that it's a very empowering feeling. And I think that people, I, I, I actually suggest it for a lot of people because I think that there's in our world today, a lot of problems arise because we are not self-reliant. We don't feel capable in our surroundings and in our scenarios, whatever it may be. But when you have that, you, you gain a sense of confidence and wholeness that, okay, I, I trust myself. I'm okay with myself. I can rely on myself to get out of these situations. You have to think different. You, you might be, I, a lot of my hunting 
later or in my adult life has been alone in the in by myself, no one else around. And that to me says, okay, I know what I'm doing because you have no one else to rely on, nothing to fall back on. And you might, something might break and you have to figure out how to fix it. You have to figure out how to get yourself out of this situation. Things go bad. You have to figure out, okay, how do I make it better? Why, why do I feel lonely? Why do I feel, do I feel scared or do I have the ability to get out of the situation? There's been a lot of interesting moments, like small moments and experiences that all add up to being comfortable and feeling like, okay, I've spent the time here. I've gained the skills that I personally wanted to gain. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I mean, to the point where, where the kill is not the most important thing by far. Right. That knowledge is, it reminded me as you spoke about that, just, uh, if I'm out fishing by myself, usually I'm just trying to, to get on fish and know where they are for a client. Yeah. And there's often times with a fly rod in my hand where a school redfish will be working down a shoreline in six, eight inches of water. And I'll just kind of kneel down and see how close they can get to me before they realize I'm there and spook off. And the last thing I'd want to do is spoil that with an 80 foot cast that would yank one out of the school and, and split the other ones up. Um, you kind of, you know, like, like, like in Hawaii, right? Um, I'm brand new at all that, but just so happened I was behind this rock looking at stuff far away and a, a mouflon and her kid just came like right over this rock where I was sitting and like blew up from seeing me maybe three yards at the most. And wow. Just those spectacular moments, right? And you mentioned loneliness too, because that's a real factor in backcountry travel. And especially you learn by yourself that you're going to be more successful by yourself um, just because less noise, less moving parts, right? Yeah. But then you do have to combat emotional moments back there, self-realizations and and loneliness is a real thing. That's a powerful emotion. And when you battle through just just that, that's a component of becoming extremely comfortable on your own. And you're stronger as a part of it. Not to mention all the evolving you do just being in the woods and and picking up on, you know, animal patterns and what they do. It's it's crucial time. There's no shortcut to that. You gotta spend a ass load of time in the woods, period. Yeah. And and the other thing is you notice more because you have to go through the entire thought process yourself. You can't bounce it off someone else. A lot of times when you're with someone, decision-making is more of whether you want it to be or not more of a team effort and their thoughts influence your thoughts and your thoughts influence their thoughts. And then analysis comes into play But when you're by yourself, the decision-making is instantaneous. You see something, you feel something, you go with it. There's no talking about it. There's no analyzing it. There's no, I think we should do this. I think you should do that. Because there's so many right and wrong. There's Nothing's right or wrong. It's just what you do. Right. But you get that, you get that instantaneous decision making, which is good because then you know if it works or doesn't work, it was on you. There's no one to blame. Was well, <laughs> you that's a, a big problem is being able to blame someone else <laughs> in anything really. Do you think it's pretty natural at first to like cover too much ground, walk too fast, 
sort of like yeah. that that's that's the way you sort of have to do it right in a new spot yeah because cover a lot of ground until you spook an animal and realize you screwed up and then you can sort of find where they congregate and slow down and start taking smaller quieter steps but at first when you're in a new place do you just start hiking like when do you know to focus and start glassing and stalking versus just covering ground yeah a lot of it if i'm going somewhere completely new I look at a lot of topo maps first because I can identify, I've just done it enough where I can identify, okay, these places are higher likelihood places. They'll hold deer. Yeah. Because if you look at a, say you're deer hunting, 90% of the deer country has no deer and 10% of it has 90% of the deer. It's just like fishing. Yeah. There there's certain places they like, and there's certain places and those two places might almost look identical. So you almost have to decide what is it about that place? A lot of times it's the shape and orientation of the hill. Certain plants grow in certain places. And other times it's just, that's just where they go. Some species, they just have an area they like and that's just, it, who knows why. But I try to find places, store places in my mind of this is in this area, the animals liked this. And then when I translate that into other places that I go, I start looking for those things. And then I narrow it down. But when I'm in a brand new area, I start, I, I start by covering a lot of ground, looking, and then finding concentrations and things that look good to me. You go, okay, yep, I could see this. And then I start picking things apart narrowing down, narrowing down. But I also, one, I think the most important thing, let's say you're, you're getting into hunting and, and now you would be good at this. This wouldn't be news to you because with flats fishing, it's very, I would imagine it's very similar, but I see it all the time because I get to guide people and you get to see everything that they do wrong and you go, okay. But the way people walk in the woods most people walk looking down at the ground. I've never been able to figure that out. You know how to walk. You let your feet feel the ground, then you're quiet, and your head is always up looking, moving, glancing, gazing, because you miss so much walking looking down. I look out. Um, you let your peripheral vision guide where you're going. You can stop and look down, but when you're walking, you're always looking up because those are the times that you notice things that other people don't notice. I go, oh, that deer jumped away. You can save yourself a lot of heartache and mistakes by walking with your head up. Mm. And I can go and I'll go hunting with someone and you can immediately tell by the way that they walk and the way that they look around, whether they know what they're doing and have done it a lot or not. It's very interesting. Can you elaborate on the right way to place your feet, how to move? Yeah, I generally walk with my the, on the front of my feet the top of my feet and then roll the foot down and it's just how i've developed how to walk for myself almost like think about you're in a house everybody's asleep and you need to sneak <laughs> to the kitchen perfect. Yeah, perfect but you can analogy. you can you can run that run in that same type of footfall i actually started doing that there was a i don't know there's just like a lot of little things that influence you. I remember I was probably, uh, probably only 13 years old. I read a book called Joe and me 
is a just like a a book about a guy that took a a kid kind of had a rough upbringing and taught him fishing and hunting in the outdoors and there's a little part in that book where the guy snuck up on him super quiet and i and it stuck out to me because i thought that's a that's a cool thought to not be heard while walking around and so i just would pretty much every day I was, I was a very strange kid, if you haven't realized. No, I'd pretty much every day <laughs> You're on the right practice me. walking quiet. I would, I had, there was quail near my parents' house, and I would take my little bow and just stalk around and walk quiet and run quiet and try to just be quiet. Yeah. And, and that's a skill that could take a, almost, take years to get good at. To be a top predator that yeah. we are. Yeah. Doesn't come totally no, naturally. You have to hone that. Yeah. It takes practice and then and then it just becomes things that you do. And there's just little nuances of all that kind of stuff. Now, in the grand scheme of things, you'd probably be fine not doing that. But that's that's just what I like. That's yeah. what I've adapted to. That's, that's all I want to like do, to man. be. You know, Gosh, darn it, I'm 50. Where's this been all my life? I'm crawling around the dirt trying to be quiet. I'm in this spot where now I'm getting close to him, but I find myself in no position to draw or lift my head. They're like on to me. I'm close enough to make a kill, but now I can't sort of sit up. I put myself in a yeah. bad position. Ultimately, I didn't have a plan in terms of being 40 yards or 25 yards. Now, if I even lift my ball cap out of the dirt, I'm, I'm nailed. A lot, a lot of it comes with like planning and foresight. A lot of people stalk to the animal, not stalk to the place to shoot an animal. That's right. So you have to think of everything. Before I go and stalk in, I know where I want to get to. Now, there's obviously certain times where, you, okay, that didn't work. The animal moved, things happen. But you're constantly pre-planning, playing. It's like a chess game. You, you go two steps ahead. And try to account for you don't know the move that the other player is going to make but you want to every time think two steps ahead think two steps ahead and the other thing is a lot of times what happens you get close and you start to get excited right and then your decision making becomes clouded Right. And, your and your still movement. Shake? Yeah. I still yeah. get, if I didn't get excited, I That's wouldn't the do drug, it. Right. It is. It's the most exciting thing. It in the is. World. It is very exciting. And those moments are very clear. And, but when you start to get excited, then your movement starts to get excited. If you've ever gone and stalked in on something that you aren't and you don't have a bow with you, it's like you can get away with anything. Have you ever noticed that? No. Yeah. You can, because, you go, okay, I'm, I'm here. And then sometimes you can sit up and the animals will just be around you and not care. It's because you aren't making those quick threatening movements that come with excitement. So sometimes you get in and you just chill out. You just relax. It's just like that. Well, that do you spirit? You, you were mentioning that you should do no, a little just bit of fishing. On that. I've done some Hawaiian sling stuff. Yeah. And that goes actually way back to some Baja days in the early 2000s um i want to do it all on a daily basis like yeah there's no time for anything else it's crazy but when i started 
trying to spearfish, I would just get too excited and I could never get close to the fish. And oh, then right. as you just calm down, fish. Right. yeah, as no. you calm down and move slow and make the, there's a way you can move that that's non-threatening non yeah. because they, animals see movement all the time. It's a certain movement that they don't like. And over time, you, you kind of learn those rhythmic movements, the a way you walk. There's people that can walk and it looks like the animal knows and goes, that's a predator coming at me. And then another person could walk through there in a slightly different way. And the animals continue to just eat mm -hmm. and look and look away because it's a, a different kind of walk. It's, it's the same way you know, a farmer could, you could drive through a farmer's field and all the deer run from your vehicle. But when he is out there working, they don't care. Right. Because he's working in a non-threatening way, something that they're used to and they don't care about. Sure. Even that's, bait fish will hang around the predator fish until it's feeding time. And exactly. And hides under a rock. Yeah. The same with those, those, those bass down in the Sea of Cortez, like, I was just chasing them with that thing, never getting close enough. And then I saw this big boulder and I'm like, huh, check out this, check out this like juke move. So the bass goes behind the rock. I pretend like I was going to follow him there, but then turned around and came to the other side of the rock. He's still looking out the, the way I was coming after him and goosh, let him yeah. have it. Yeah. He never saw me. <laughs> That's like, cool. Yeah, this is how it works. Yeah. Um, have you ever hunted in Texas? Uh, yes. Just, uh, pigs and javelina so let's talk just a little bit about that distinction because i think uh growing up in texas um early on I, like i was stalking squirrels learning to be quiet but then the 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 majority of hunting in texas is sort of done on a feeder from a from a blind that's not that's not hunting it's more of harvesting and from a management standpoint it makes a lot of sense um have you stalked have you stalked game in texas yeah a little bit i mean just the pigs and stuff it's very thick and loud and a lot of the country's not very conducive to it could you give some advice to some that want to get out of the blind and maybe walk around and try their luck that way yeah i think probably well it depends a lot of cactus and stuff but just moving through that stuff slow almost what i would consider still hunting because you can't glass it you find trails and other things and you might be surprised if you move slow and look, you, you have to even, you could be in and only be able to see five or six feet. You still want to use your binoculars and look at everything because you can see through the different layers of it. And then you move through, move slowly through that. And that can actually be pretty effective. It's just your eyes have to be better than their eyes. So you get the wind right and then you move slow. You listen. And the other thing is use your nose. When you're in that thick stuff, a lot of times you can smell most of these animals before you see them. Yeah. That's something that I learned elk hunting in thick timber. Most of the elk that we ended up getting would be something because I smelt them before we saw them. And then you get in that heightened mode. And another little tip is like have, I use, just use my voice or but as soon as you spook something, the second that it goes to run or yeah. some kind of animal noise because they, they stop and go, what, well, what spooked me? Unless they wind you right, or straight up see you, they might not know. But going slow, changing your gait so when you, when you walk, it doesn't sound 
my grandpa used to do this like weird shuffle walk thing. He's like, no, they, the, the walk, 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 walk sounds like a person. You can, you can tell the difference when you're sitting in bed and a dog runs through your house or a person's walking around. Yeah, they sound completely different. In the bush or something. They sound completely different. Yeah. yeah. But that kind of just moving slow, taking your time, step, look, step, look, step, look, that can be extremely effective. I mean, I've used that tactic all over the place, New Zealand and the, the jungle type bush, uh, elk hunting in the thick timber or even hunting pigs or other things. Now, most of the stuff that I like to hunt is more open where you can look a long ways and you're in the mountains and it's, it's wide open. You spot from distance and then move in, but still hunting and, and moving slow is very effective, especially because probably most of the animals or most of the places in the country are like that thick, hard to see and, and lend themselves well to just moving through areas or high concentration areas, sneaking around. I would guess you spend a, most of your time in public lands. Yeah. Based on the vastness of areas that you spend so much time in. This is just private lands don't offer that, that much territory. Yeah. And I'm really bad at asking for permission. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I grew up in Nevada though. And I grew up in Nevada and public land is everywhere. There's, there's no such thing as a no trespassing sign there. You, you can go anywhere you want. And when you're used to that, that's what it's just your upbringing. You aren't used to somebody telling you you can't go somewhere. So you just gravitate toward that. There seems to be sort of a, a, a seismic shift right now politically in, in terms of public land and their future. What's, what's your thoughts on that with bear's ears, you know, specifically and, and other places that could get turned over to mining and other, you know, extraction of resources. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm very passionate about keeping public lands public. One of the things that scares me is the selling off of public lands. And a lot of that happens when it's turned over to the state. I mean, Texas is a prime example. Yep. There's not much public land because the state owned Texas and the state sold Texas. Yep. It's big bins uh, under threat. Everywhere is yeah. under threat. And I think each air now I'm no, I don't have a magic pen and answers for everything. There are certain things that you go, I hate to be the type of person that takes everything as black and white. It's very easy to do, especially now with social media and all the bandwagons out there. It's like a lot of hate comes from black and like, like looking at things either one way or another. And being it's either totally black or white. Right? right. And you just make an opinion and you lash out and you go, no, it's this way on everything. Well, maybe here there, there's a gray area of some kind of compromise that's beneficial. I don't know. I don't have the answers for that. I just know that for me, my position is I want to keep public lands public. And then every single case out there probably is in, is a, is a separate, you have to look at it separately. Yeah. But for me, public land is extremely important. So that's the side that I, I gravitate toward. And hunters are a huge component of that. Who else? I mean, some people hike, you know, but, but, but 
hunters by and large are, are the are the are the biggest user group for these wild, these wilderness areas without hunting there's no interest in those areas they do go away right definitely yeah it, we don't preserve something that has no value it's just not ever going to happen well what's the value of this giant mountain range we could put or this big valley well for me the value of that valley is winter range for the animals that i hunt because now if you build in there then those animals are going to go away they're going to die off yeah you know whether a hunter sees i would say when you're a hunter you kill an animal and it's very direct that animal died because of this action yet our actions kill animals every day yeah great point way more than a hunter would ever take but we don't see it you don't realize that when you build a development in a wetland that those those ducks don't just go away they continue they stop being as productive their numbers dwindle and it's a chain reaction yeah everything suffer greater numbers for scarce resources correct and move to different areas they have lose nesting ground same with mule deer winter range and you know i've talked about this a lot in in a lot of places but we've negatively affected the environment to a way that we have to be stewards and managers of it it it, there's no notion or no circumstance where you can say oh well let's just leave it how it was let nature take care of nature that's not a that's not an option idealistic but not realistic it's not realistic it it can never be as it was that's absolutely right i mean we we've severely altered the landscape in a way that we have to continue altering the landscape we have to we've already made a mess of things now we have to be good stewards of what we've made a mess of and it's a it's a weird thought but i like to take the approach of or 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 pose the question can we leave the world better than we found it is that possible is it i don't know what do you think i don't know fascinating and and very hopeful you know, things going on out there right now. I think that, yeah, I think that you can, in some instances, make it better than you found it, but you can never make it how it was a hundred years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's just different. You could look at one species and say, well, that species is doing better, but then you can look at a native grass species that is no longer around. Yeah. Making it better than it ever was for me would mean that, that everyone comes together on a realistic approach that works and, and uses rationale versus political divide to get stuff done. Yeah. A lot of common sense can, can go a long ways for me. I like to take a scientific approach to wildlife management and other types of management, whereas a lot of emotion gets mixed into it. And when human emotion is translated to something like a balance of nature that's absent of human emotion, and then you're interjecting decisions based on emotion, it, it just doesn't work. Yeah, it, it, it falls short of the goals. And then unfortunately, a lot of things suffer. And that's no way to, to make things better. You've spent some time in Africa and there's probably no greater example, right? Because people are literally just trying to 
to eat. They're trying to meet their primary needs. Right. And in areas where you've got generational hunters, right, that, that are trackers that are as good as anyone on the planet at what they do. And then you take sort of a, a stereotypical liberal stance as an American against killing these animals. And what you don't realize is that you're depriving those communities, not only of their livelihood, but you're taking away from them the things that they're the best at doing and love to do. And ultimately that turns into to cattle land, right? I mean, the exactly. animals die regardless. So, you know, the hunting as a form of exploitation is the best form of preservation because it's the least damaging to that area in terms of keeping it going, keeping those people at work, keeping those animals alive. Well, yeah, if you have a, if you have say a hundred acres or whatever, just as a, this is just like a micro example, but if you have a hundred acres of native bush that holds 20 animals and it, it's productive enough to hold 20 animals and you go in there and there's 24 animals. So every year you take off four animals and then the native bush and those animals live there. Now, now then someone comes in and says, no, you can't take those four animals, but you own that land. And you go, well, I was making money on those four animals. I guess I'll run cattle. So you bring in a tractor, you rip out the native bush. Now, how many animals live there? Zero. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> you just killed 20 animals and it will never be productive again as opposed to killing four a year and keeping whatever the population is or the growing population. Now that population doesn't exist. You've extincted that micropopulation on yeah, that piece of land. That's reality folks. Yeah. And as painful as that might seem, that's where we're at. Yeah. Extinction doesn't come from hunting. It comes from mismanagement. Right. That's, that's unfortunate. You know, I mean, gosh, it's, we live in such an increased urbanized society, um, so far removed from our from our forefathers. Given that trend, what's your outlook on hunting in the future? Its relevance, its acceptability, even palpability moving forward. I I heard that that rifle hunting is on the decline, but bow hunting is on a steep incline. Is that is that true? It was for sure. I don't know. I'm you know I haven't looked at the statistics probably recently. I think that I can see that being true. I know that I've heard different stats on bow hunting becoming more popular, um, which is is good for hunting in general. I think the biggest threat to hunting is hunters sometimes. I think that hunters now, we live in now a world where Everything is public. Everything is social. Everything is shared. And sometimes hunters can be divisive amongst other hunters. Oh, bow hunting's on the rise. I'm a bow hunter. Oh, you're a rifle hunter? No, you're bad. You don't yeah. do right. How? So you're saying that then that you, you just become, in that instance, in my opinion, an anti-hunter. You're, you're hurt, harming hunting as a general. Because you're now allowing emotion or your personal emotions to dictate your decisions and the way that you interact and the way that you push things forward. So 
in my opinion, the continued success of hunting and other things isn't decided by people that hunt. It's decided by the decision makers out there, the the majority of the people in the middle that neither hunt nor don't hunt. And depending on how they view it is whether it continues because it's a privilege. It's not a right. Right. And for that privilege to continue, I think hunters in general need to come together and say, what are we putting out there to these decision makers? And how can we self-police? What a lot of people don't understand is the history of hunters self-policing is over 100 years old. Organizations set up codes of ethics. When you go through a hunter safety course, most of that is on a code of ethics. Now, the trouble is that we live in a very selfish society now. And with selfishness, a lot of times ethics are thrown out the window. And you go, if something's legal, is it right? Not always. There are times when something might not be legal and doing the opposite would be right. There, but for, for hunting, we've always been a community that self-polices. And in recent times, we've gotten away from that. And that is the biggest threat, getting away from the self-policing, feeling entitled, feeling selfish. When you feel entitled about something, you, you make the wrong moves. You feel bold and brazen to just do something that harms it in right. general. Yeah, I've been trying to go just personally on a route where perhaps an unnecessary behavior of, of my own is could have a negative consequence on someone else's experience, right? Yeah. yeah like, sometimes intentional, sometimes unintentional, but, you know, being mindful of that we all have this, the same privilege to that resource. Um, it's just critical to keep that in mind. The, um, it can, it can roll for a second while I get my thoughts. That's awesome. Remy, that's good shit, man. The, uh, all right, coming back, like one of the most inspiring things about your Insta feed to me is the, are the recipes. Oh yeah. Cause otherwise, I mean, shooting an animal and standing, standing over this dead thing is not the end game. Right. Right. Like taking that animal, sharing that with the community, preparing it to the best way you know how, um, that's where the real beauty kicks in, isn't it? And it then is. how is it to eat a wonderful meal that you serve to your loved ones, your friends that you stocked and, and brought from, from field to table? I mean, that is an incredible experience. It, Unlike going to the best restaurant in New York City is not as fine as as preparing, correctly preparing, striving to make the best preparation of, of game that you brought. I've always felt that you value things in life that you work for. If, if you've ever been hunting, you know that it's not that easy. Now, when you are successful, you take value in that. You know where that animal came from, but you also know... This elk might have taken me 10 days to find and kill. And then I had to pack it out of the mountains. And, and then I had to bring it home just because of the hunt's over. doesn't mean that the work's over. Now I have to butcher it or even take it to a butcher and then pay for it to be butchered. But either way, a lot of work goes into it. Now it's a, a, a package in my freezer. And then when I pull that out, I look at it and go, wow, I've put a lot into this. So I value it more. 
I'm going to spend more time and I want it to, I want other people to see the value in it as well. So I try to cook things in a way that is good and you go, wow, this is awesome. Somebody that does says, I don't like, I have plenty of friends that may have not eaten wild game or had it and didn't like it. And then they come over and they go, this is good. It's surprised. Like, yeah, it is good because you put the time into a preparation of it. You want it to be good. So that's something that I'm very passionate about, but I think a lot of hunters, uh, are good at cooking because they take value in it. They take pride in it. It's something that they're providing and they want to continue providing it through from the beginning to the end. They're a part of that process. It's, uh, and, and there might be some that aren't, but I think that they, ha they have that desire to, to want to know, okay, how can I make this better? So I'm always trying to, cause pretty much all I eat is wild game meat. Well, so I'm beautiful. always trying finding yeah. ways to, to do something different with it. And that's, that to me, I take a lot of pride in that. Something that's important to me. How long did it take you to arrive at the shank as your favorite cut? That's very uh, French of you. Yeah. Well, yeah. My name is Remy. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think one day, cause I always thought, uh, the shank, when every time you get there, there's all these tendons and things. And, and then I thought, uh, I really enjoy Basque food. People, it's a kind of a lot of lamb and other things it's very popular in nevada because we have a very strong basque culture there so one of my favorite things to eat was lamb shank i go why can't i just do this with a deer so i'll go somewhere eat something and go i like that can i do and i tried it and thought that was surprisingly good i had no clue that it would turn out like that because i didn't know anybody that cooked game shanks it just wasn't a thing so then i was like well man there's only four of these shanks on an animal oh now so if i would guide someone and be like hey you're gonna keep that shank oh yeah take it that's disgusting make osabuco or whatever with it i i, I just and because it was something surprising to me and knew that i liked it and that process of cooking in the house and the smell from the kitchen that goes on all day because it's a oh, slow yeah, cook slow so cook. you're just like, instead you walk of like in, you going go, a backstrap yep. on hot fire for just a few minutes and it's done um yeah, I ran into a guy that wanted to give me the backstrap if if he could have my front shoulder. And yeah. I was like, man, in Texas, we've I've never even seen anyone keep the front shoulder. So he's like, oh my God, watch this. So and this was in Hawaii, right? Yeah. So he he sort of filleted the brisket off the outside of the ribs and it's paper thin. If you hold it up to the sky, there's holes in it, little streaks of fat, a little bit of red meat here and there. And then sort of proceeded downward as that flap fell over and deboned the front shoulder and then sort of laid that big piece of meat out on a table. Well, then he sort of packed it with herbs and rolled it up super tight and, and trussed it mm -hmm. and then put a little bay leaf for Hunter's good fortune under the, under the string and then cut the end square. And it was this rolled up slow braised roast. And I, I cooked it super slow, follows instruction, browned it, seared it, turned it way down, added wine and, vegetables and my god it's the best cut on the deer yeah well they're so lean that you need the if you're gonna that's i like to slow cook a lot of things and i've been in i went to some uh like cooking class type thing and the lady there was a very good chef but she said 
She's like, there's no way to slow cook game because it's, well, that's not true. Like you can slow cook it, but those cuts with more connective tissue turn out better because right. they hold the moisture because there, there's no fat in the meat. So it dries out, but you can get around that when you start cooking the shank and the front shoulder and bigger pieces whole. I, I like that. And so I just experiment with all kinds of different ways of cooking. I'm always doing something different and it's fun for me. It's something that it's, it's like a, it's another hobby that's involved, like not hobby, but passion that's involved with hunting. It all goes hand in hand. When you approach the animal, is it like priority one to get the guts out? Are you just like on fire when you get there? Maybe a little bit of celebration, uh, a, a nod to the animal and its life, and then boom. Yeah, I I mostly do uh, like a gut. Like I I I skin my animals. Like I skin it out first, and then remove the meat generally from the animal, leaving the guts inside the carcass. Oh, really? Yeah. It it's just it's faster way for me to cool it down and less possible contamination and other things. And then I take whatever innards that I want, generally the heart. And, um, I'm not a big liver eater, but yeah, I was going to say, I've followed some recipes and that's supposed to be like a camp meal. The faster you eat the liver, the better, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't done a venison liver that I was super proud of yet. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not big into liver. I do a thing uh, where I kind of, grind it up add bacon and other stuff and then wrap it in either the call fat or something and then you cook it over a, a wood fire and that that turns out okay but yeah i'm not a big liver fan but however the heart doesn't get rigor mortis like the other muscles and it's actually a muscle so you clean that up and that's the best thing like fresh what's your preparation there doesn't take much just don't overcook it with a minute aside so just hot on hot on both hot sides on get, both a, sides, get yeah. a get a finish on both sides yeah. and take it off season it garlic and whatever and throw it on a sandwich or a bagel put some garlic and onion in with it great camp meal for people that are going just like oh my god is there any getting used to or if it's done right it's delicious right off the bat i think so. i mean i've given it to people that would never would turn their nose up something like that and they've enjoyed it but i also think that there is a little bit of getting used to. I don't, there might be something that I think is good and someone would be like, oh, that's a little gamey, but I try to be very sensitive to something that, that might be gamey because I understand if it has a bad bad taste, you, nobody wants to eat it. Even I have a hard time I'm with very, whitetail, man. I can't get them to be what I want it to be. Yeah, and Ground then, up and used as supplemental just protein, I'm fine with like in, in soups and lasagna or whatever, but I, I haven't done a backstrap or a tenderloin of a whitetail that it, that you like. That I could, and some people like that sort of gamey flavor. Yeah, but I think I've had access, and there's no comparison oh, for it's, me. Yeah, personally. that's good. Now, whitetail, it depends on the time of year, probably. Uh, what I've, yeah, some of the best stuff I've had is, is actually like some really good whitetail, especially early in the season. But I've been leaving more like bone in and doing chops and other things yeah and yeah i i cook like a couple times a year i'll just cook a bunch of different things and then just see what everybody likes and sometimes it's the things that you don't think are as good that end up surprising you and then there's other stuff like if it's bad then i do a little more slow cooking and marinating and a little bit more time on the prep of it try to get some of that some of that out i've i've just recently um last couple of years learned the technique of leaving the bone in in the loin yeah 
and and I hadn't done that before. I'd only been shown and and the extraction of the backstrap is pretty easy. Mm. But to leave the bone in, it just uh, God, in the in terms of cooking, you get a lot more connective tissue there. It's harder to overcook it. The flavor from the bone is intense. Yeah. Are there time I mean, I, I imagine deep into the field that's a tough thing to do. Yeah, it is. Um, it's more like if you get something that's easy and you can carry it back. Right. Or small and light. Yeah. But for the most part, when you're packed in a long ways, you leave the bones on the mountain or most of them. If you're in proximity, is that something that you go, hey, I don't have too far of a walk. I'm going to oh, yeah. leave the ribs and the, and the yep. loin this time. Yeah, exactly. Awesome, man. Let's see. A couple more questions for you. Um, and I can plug this one back in. I meant to... If you had the opportunity to sit down with members of Congress or the president, what, what message would you have for them concerning the preservation of our public land heritage? I think the main message would be to just, to just look at it as what it means to our future. I guess my story with public lands and wild places is very personal to me it's my home so invading that is invading my home that's the way i see it um because i look at a lot of the mo monumental things in my life and they happened out there not everybody has that connection with it but they should have the opportunity to taking it away from us today it might seem like it only hurts a small amount of people the people that use it, that live in it, very few people. But it, when you take something away today, it's gone forever. And that really is my worst fear. Because we aren't here that long in the grand scheme of things. You know, <laughs> we keep, keep hearing all this stuff like colonies on Mars. Yeah. And you start to think, We've been given a perfect earth. Just a new place why don't to we put our figure trash, out? Right? Yeah. Why don't we figure out how to live here and conserve what we have here? Because the thing about it is it's a finite resource and you only got one. And I hope that generations from now can thank us, or they shouldn't even have to thank us for not taking away. It should just be there for them. I think that they should have the opportunities that we have and be able to enjoy those things. Because when that's all gone, I mean, what do we really have? Hmm. That's a frightening thought. I get like a claustrophobic feeling having two young boys when I think of like the future of, of me showing them what's, what's, what's important to me and not being able to. It's, it's petrifying. It is a scary thought. It's a scary thought that there wouldn't be these wild places that we've come to a point where we don't need them anymore. That, that's a scary thought. The message is to get out there and use it. Yeah. Take your kids, other people's kids, load a bus full of kids, take them to, take them to your nearest national park. Yeah. Walk around, enjoy the beauty of the outdoors. If you only could hunt for one species the rest of your days, what would it be? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's too many options. I, I really enjoy mule deer hunting. Uh, I love mule deer hunting with my bow. Um, I like guiding elk hunting, uh, archery elk hunts and stuff. That's, that's, I Huge like taking people elk hunting. And 
And then I like uh, sheep hunting and just the mount. I, I love big mountain hunting. So I think more than an animal, it's a place. I like any kind of mountain hunt. Yeah. So that's where that early season archery mule deer comes into play. Elk hunting comes into play. Sheep hunting, just being in the mountains. That's where, that's what I love. I'm with you there. I mean, the, the, the closest proximity from my front porch to good hunting and fishing is kind of the ultimate dream. Yeah. Anything you do different in your career up to this point? I mean, life is all about learning. No, I mean, I'm pretty content. And anything that I wanted to do, I do. It's just very, if I think of something, it gets in my head, then I just do it, figure it out along the way most of the time. Future plans beyond marriage and family and stuff? Where do you see yourself down the line? Um, you know, I, I think it'd just be cool to, to be able to pass down what what I've learned to, to someone else in my family. Keep it going. I think that that's, that's part of it is being able to share that with the ones closest to you. Um, I think, you know, I think that. And there's a lot. What you just said includes a tremendous amount of information. Yeah. From the stalking, the time, you know, you put into hunting, bringing it home, learning to cook it, make it edible and beyond edible, you know, that's a tremendous gift to pass on to somebody. Yeah. Now whether you could have kids and be like, oh, you, know, you never <laughs> want to do what your dad did. <laughs> that's how we yeah. learn, right? The mistakes, like, oh, are, I don't want to do the that. mistakes are more impactful than the victories. Exactly. But yeah, I think it needs to be, it needs to be something passed down. I think that I think that if hunting were to go away the world it would be a loss for the world because hunters really do care about the wild places. It's where they're most comfortable, it's what they think about, it's what they're very passionate about. And so if you just thought of oh hunting they're just killing animals, well you're wrong, you've misunderstood it, you don't get it. And I think that it would be a very devastating place to live in when those people are gone because they are the ones that have always historically been the ones that protect these wild places. If it weren't for a hunter, we wouldn't have national parks. Yep. It's, it's because hunters understand the value of life. They understand the value of wild places. They understand the value of conservation and they understand the importance of it to themselves and to society. And I think that that message gets lost, especially in today's culture when a lot of things are very selfish. And that's, well put, Remy. Hey, man, thanks for what you do and for the inspiration and for your perspective. Really appreciate catching up. Yeah, I, like, I appreciate you having me and it's great to just be able to sit here and, and chat about it for a little bit. Uh, now you got that girl you found her. Don't let her go. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, man. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Thanks again for listening to Drifting, presented by Yeti and hosted by me, JT Van Zandt. To listen to more episodes, visit yeti.com or search Drifting on iTunes.